Good morning. My name is Jesse Wright. I'm the City Center Campus Pastor here. Glad to be with you this morning. We are in the middle of a series called Empty. Uh, talking about some different mental health issues. We've talked about depression and anxiety. And I think really, if we're honest, this is a conversation we need to be having. There is an unfortunate stigma around mental health in our culture that there should be surrounded by embarrassment or that it is kind of just shrouded in, in, in shame. I, I think for us, it's important for us to understand this conversation needs to happen. We, we need to have these conversations about mental health, about these things. In fact, one in five Americans suffer from some sort of mental illness. But of that, 60% do not get the help that they need. And unfortunately, 90% of suicide people had suffered from some point a mental illness because they did not get the help that they needed. And sometimes it's because they're afraid to go and get the help that was there. And so this morning, I want you to know that when you leave, there is a lobby, or in the lobby, there is a table out there that is full of mental health resources. Counselors will be there, resources will be there. This is something you need. Do not be afraid to go there. Do not be afraid of the perception of others. Do not be afraid of what people might say. If this is the help that you need, please seek that help. See, today we're going to be talking about this fear being afraid to do something you know you need to do. And so we're going to kind of wrestle with fear together today. We're going to be honest about fear. I want you to, to pick a, a movie, a kind of a fear-filled movie for you. They just kind of, they just get everything right. Right, the characters are just the right amount of fear. The setting, the music, the lighting, just all of these things kind of culminates into one big fearful moment that at some point causes a response. For me, mine, in fact, is not a movie, but a show. How many of you remember a show called Unsolved Mysteries? Anybody remember that show? Okay, yeah, some of you know this show. If you don't know the show, the premise was this. There would be some sort of crime that had happened that was not solved, and they would present it to you, kind of reenact it through the show. And at the end of the episode, they would come on and say, if you or any of your family members know about the whereabouts of these individuals or no clues or facts about this, please call this number. But see, th this show did a great job of just building fear in you. Right? They would have this kind of a scary theme song, kind of mysterious sound. At the beginning of every episode, it would start with the city and the state of which this crime was committed. And they would go on and reenact this story, and you, you, just, you were just kind of in the story. I can remember when I was 10 years old, I was watching this late at night by myself. Already a bad decision, I know, but nonetheless. So I turn on the show, and it starts with Columbus, Ohio. And I was old enough to know that Columbus was very near to Mansfield. So I begin watching this show, and throughout this episode, it is about a man who broke into someone's home and just kidnapped two children and just left with them. And so at the end of the episode, it kind of gives that, that request, if you know about the whereabouts of this man or these children, and it just leaves this mystery unsolved. And as a 10-year-old, I'm kind of watching this thinking, what? What did I just, this guy is, like, he's out there? Like, he could be near me? He could be in my backyard? He could be in my front yard. He could be in the kitchen. 
right? And you begin to dream up all these what-if scenarios. Like, what if, he's, what if he's there? And so I'm just terrified in fear for a moment, just kind of frozen in fear. Not able to get up, not able to do anything, just kind of sitting there like, oh, is any place I go safe right now? And so eventually I get the courage to turn off the TV. I thought, I just, I just need to like, get to my bed. I just, I just want to go to bed and like, leave this alone. So I go upstairs, I brush my teeth, I'm brushing my teeth, I turn the water off, I go to open the door to my bathroom, and in the bathroom doorway, there is a man standing in the bathroom door. And upon seeing this man, I scream, I fall to the ground, just get in the fetal position and begin to cry. And then my father says, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I just watched Unsolved Mysteries, like, (laughs) it's really tense. He's like, you need to stop watching that. That's, that's solid advice. It was solid advice. And so it, it's those moments where fear kind of, all of a sudden, fear makes you respond. Right? Fear causes you to act in some way. And so as we look through fear, we see that there are healthy types of fear. There are unhealthy types of fear. But fear leads you to respond in certain ways. A healthy type of fear, for those of you that enjoy hiking, you know, you know not to go too close to the edge for the fear of falling off. That's a healthy type of fear. If you see a fire, you know not to touch the fire for the fear of getting burnt. Perhaps it's a a fear of public speaking and it causes you to just be a little more attentive to what you need to say. Those are all healthy types of fear. But then there's those unhealthy types of fear. Those types of fear where you begin to dream these what if scenarios. What if this were to happen? Or what if, or what if, and you start building up all these scenarios in your head. And all of a sudden it goes from being a fear to you now have anxiety about what might happen. About the fear that you have dreamed up. And so we see that, you know, and sometimes we respond, it freezes us. We're just kind of frozen in fear. It cripples us. It exhausts us. Right, it makes it hard to respond in a way we want to respond to because we're so crippled, we're so just exhausted by the thought of this fear and what might happen. Certainly we can look at specific types of fears. There's thousands of different types of just fears of different things. But I think really it's better to look more at kind of the root of some of the fears. Maybe you have a a social fear. Right, and certainly at Crossroads, we encourage you to invite people to, to church, invite people to be a part of your group or to events. But maybe through doing that, that gives you this fear of, well, what if, what if that causes some sort of disconnect? What if I, like, invite them and they're offended by it? Or what if I invite them or they just, like, look at me differently? Or what if, and, like, this scenario, like, creates some sort of disconnect? Or maybe it's not so much a social fear. Maybe, maybe it's more of kind of a, an employment fear through social or maybe, maybe it's more of a conversational fear, right? Where you know there is someone in your life that you need to provide some sort of encouragement to, some sort of instruction or guidance or leadership to. Wait, well, what, what if they say this? What if I try to provide some instruction? What if they don't like it? What if it, like, separates us? What if they hate me because of it? And we look at these different types of fears and we see, you know, when you get to that fearful moment, when you have to act, you know, that that rapid heart rate, your senses are just kind of overloaded, you're sweating, you're just so nervous about everything, but it's time that you have to respond in some way. 
But maybe, maybe it's bigger than those types of fears. Maybe more so than just a social fear or a physical fear. Maybe it's the fear of righteousness. Right, where you're afraid that if you do the right thing, it will not be good enough. That if you try to do the right thing, you'll fall short. And maybe, maybe it looks like, you know, in the job place, maybe you're trying to get a promotion or a new job, and you could do so by, you know, kind of promoting yourself or talking about what you've done, or if that might not be good enough, maybe you could degrade or downplay the work of someone else. So instead of building up yourself, you're going to tear down someone else. That the fear of righteousness, that maybe if I do the right thing, what if that's not good enough? Or maybe it's the fear of repentance. Right? That maybe there's a sin in your life that's just always been there. It's always lingered around, kind of always been there. And you're afraid to get rid of it. Afraid to repent from it. Certainly, in, in my work at the city center, we deal with some people who struggle with substance abuse. And throughout the conversation about substance abuse, you hear these words. It makes me feel a certain way. And so there, there's kind of this failure to repent for fear of not feeling a certain way. And there's a danger in that. If you are refusing to repent from your sin because you feel a certain way, then it's this fear of repentance. But really what we see more than the fear of righteousness or the fear of repentance would be the fear of consequences. That I'm afraid to do the right thing because of the consequences I may suffer from it. I'm afraid to repent and kind of confess my sins because of the consequences that might be associated with that. These, these are real things that we have to deal with. Real fears, real choices, real thoughts that we kind of wrestle with. I want to kind of show you a repeated example through Scripture of this fear of consequences, this fear of repentance. So in your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11. This is kind of a, a well-known story about David and Bathsheba. But what we continually see in this story is the fear of consequences. 2 Samuel, chapter 11, page 262, if you're using one of our Bibles. Uh, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now we can stop here and look at this fear of righteousness right away. Right, he, he sees this woman and immediately finds out that she is married. Now that can be enough. That should be enough to say, all right, I can do the right thing. I need to remove myself from this situation. I need to leave this alone and move on. That, that, that should be enough right there. Knowing that she is married, that should be enough. But if that's not enough, we know two things about her from that verse. She is the daughter of Eliam, who was in David's army, a very loyal man in David's army. She was the wife of Uriah, who was in David's army. So as if being married was not enough, her, her dad and her husband are very loyal to David. So we see that there's this fear of righteousness, I could do the right thing, but then that, that selfishness creeps in. 
So all of a sudden, it's the fear of righteousness up against the selfishness of what do I really want, though? I know what's right, but also, I want this. We keep going. We look at verse 5. Or verse 4, excuse me. So David sent messages and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now we can look at this story, and we, we don't know through scripture, we don't know exactly what David's intent initially was. We can read through it, we can think that, you know, maybe at some point he was trying to muster up the courage to repent, to be honest with Uriah, to confess his sins, and maybe this next part that we read is him stalling to try and get the courage to do so. We don't know his intent, but what we see is this awkward exchange between David and Uriah where David is asking somewhat ridiculous questions that he would already know the answer to or have a better way of finding out those answers. Look at the questions that he asked. In verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing. David sent messengers to Joab to get Uriah. If David really wanted to know how Joab was doing, he would have asked the messengers to give a report. And the next thing he says, how the people were doing. If he really wanted to know how the soldiers were doing, he would ask Joab, the leader. He would ask the messengers to find out. Now we know David is, is very involved in military, military background, and so this next question just sounds foolish then. And then he said, and how the war was going. Right, so we don't know in this instance, is he honestly seeking answers to these questions, or is he asking these questions in hopes that he can eventually find the courage to ask the questions, or to ask for forgiveness, or to say what needs to be said? And so is he just stalling for that account? We don't know. But what we see is David kind of suffering through this fear of repentance, that he cannot get the courage to do so. In verse 8, David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Do you see the contrast in loyalty to each other? David, who cannot muster up the courage to say what needs to be said and to confess his wrongdoings, as compared to Uriah, who is going above and beyond because of his loyalty to David. Verse 12 says, Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. 
I, I want you to, one more time, catch the loyalty of Uriah. David essentially wrote the death notice for Uriah, handed it to Uriah, Uriah, who then went and gave it to Joab. The trust and loyalty that Uriah exemplified in never opening the letter, walking to his leader, handing him his leader in which the note read that he was to die, never looking at it because he trusted him that much. In verse 17 it says, And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Amlachek, the son of Jerusalem? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. We see through this, we see what fear can do. Right? Fear changed David. The fear of consequences was enough for him to begin thinking a different way. And so what we see is that fear can change the way you think. Fear can change your way of thinking about things. That when you live in fear, you begin to kind of dream up these different scenarios and think about these different things. And certainly we see that in David. If you look at verse 6, right, in verse 6 it said, So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah. Now, typically, in the middle of a war, you don't request one of your top military guys to come home from the war just so you can say, hey, it changes your way of thinking. And it's true for us as well. Right, when you're in those fear-filled moments, it changes the way you think about things. You begin to kind of dream these what-if scenarios. In fact, for me, I had this happen not too long ago. One of the few nice days we had a while ago, I decided to go for a jog. I thought, you know what, I'm gonna get some cardio in, get a, just get a quick run in, and just, just go about my day. So I begin running through my neighborhood, and as I'm running, what I see, it appears to be a large turtle. Now, I do not live in a neighborhood or near a body of water that a large turtle, turtle should be prevalent. So it's a little alarming. Why would there be a large turtle crawling around my neighborhood? But as I get closer, I realize it's moving quite a bit faster than a turtle would move. So now I'm perplexed. What is this I'm actually seeing? It's about the shape of a size of a large turtle, but it's also moving quite quickly. And as I get closer, I realize what it is I'm looking at. It's essentially a lawnmower Roomba. <laughs> right? One of these self-propelled mowers that is no individual around is running it. And so I look at it and I'm thoroughly confused as to how it works. I am all for the advancement of technology but also the idea of a robot lawnmower is a little frightening. And so I can remember looking at it, and I begin to dream up these what-if scenarios in my head, trying to like rationalize to make it make sense to me. How does it work? How does it know if this is a blade of grass or a human foot? How would it know those things? How does it know where to go, where to turn, and where to stop? How do you know these things? 
And so then in my head, I begin to kind of dreaming, well, if I can't answer these things, what if this were to happen? What if on my jog, this robot lawnmower, it begins to chase me? What if on my jog, this robot lawnmower happens to be faster than me? And what if, what if it catches me? Then what happens? Right, and so I begin to dream of all these what if scenarios. So when I had a path I had planned on taking, the fear that was in front of me made me change my path. Right, it changed the way I was thinking, and I went to the other side of the road behind a few extra trees, cars, whatever was in my way, to keep that between me and the robot lawnmower, just to be safe. Fear can change the way we think about things. And because fear can change the way we think about things, fear can cause us to do the wrong thing. Right, fear can cause us to do the wrong thing. If you look at verse 13, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. It is not usually a good plan to bring one of your top military guys home and get him drunk instead of battling in the war. But because he wrestled with that fear of consequences of his actions, fear made it seem like this was an appropriate thing to do. Fear can cause you to do the wrong thing. And because of that, and because fear can change the way you think about things, fear can not only cause you to do the wrong thing, but fear can cause you not to do the right thing. Throughout this story, there was time after a time where David could have confessed, could have repented, could have been honest. But he doesn't. The fear of consequences far outweighed that of doing the right thing. And so eventually what we see that is because fear can change your way of thinking, because fear can cause you to do the wrong thing, and fear can cause you not to do the right thing, fear can lead to sin. We see the power of fear in this story and the mistakes that were made because of fear. So if we see the power of fear, it's important to kind of identify what does fear look like in our lives? And actually later on, if you would turn with me to Psalm 56, we're going to read a psalm from David, but he responds in a much different way. Now in Psalm 56, we're going to read this in a second, but I want to give you the backstory of what's really happening in Psalm 56. And it comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. So the common story that most people know about David would be David and Goliath. Right? Goliath was the champion fighter from the city of Gath. Right, one of their prize fighters, the top fighter of his time. And that David killed Goliath from Goth. And then later we see that because of the success of David in wars, that he, he gets this following, and King Saul becomes jealous and begins to chase after David and try and kill him. And he begins breathing these murderous threats against him. And so what we're going to read in 1 Samuel is, is David is kind of fleeing from Saul but look at where he winds up. In verse 8 of 1 Samuel 21, it says, David said to Amalek, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. The priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will, take that. Take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. 
So now here he is with the very sword that he killed Goliath with. And look at the next place he has to go to. David flees to Goth. In verse 10 it says, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ashish, the king of Goth. And the servants of Ashish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land, did they not sing to one another of him in the dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Think about this setting. As we're about to read Psalm 56, Saul and his men are chasing after David with the intent to kill him. David shows up in Goth with the very sword that he killed Goliath with. And you can imagine that if you were a Philistine living in Goth, this is not a welcome sight. This is the guy who killed your champion fighter. This is the guy who has killed hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of Philistines, which to them would be friends and family, siblings and relatives. And so you could imagine with him in this setting, there's certainly some animosity from this group as well. And so when we see that, we see in Psalm 56, he begins to describe what, it, what he's going through, what life is like, and it's the feelings that he's feeling. So in Psalm 56, in verse 1, it says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. If you go back and you look at the original word for tramples, it's the word devour. These men were trying to devour David. Multiple groups of people were trying to devour David. It says, all day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. The word attack here is the Hebrew root lakam, which means to wage war. People were waging war against David. Multiple different groups of people were waging war against David. It may be hard for us to fathom the fear that he's truly wrestling with. Because chances are the majority of us in this room have not had multiple groups of people waging war on you with the intent to devour you. And so you understand that setting, but then you see his response in verse 3. In verse 3 he says, When I am afraid, rightfully so in this scenario, I put my trust in you. One more time. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And then the question is, how can he do that? And he says in verse 4, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? My enemies will turn back in the days when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? We see through this, this psalm the, the different struggles, the different fears that David is facing. Right, in verse 1, we see that David is facing a physical fear. Multiple groups of people are trying to harm, kill, devour him. We see him facing a physical fear. In verse 5, verse 5, it says, All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. He faces this, this fear of the unknown. What's going to happen to me? This fear of the future. 
know, we're in a season right now where a lot of people are graduating high school and college and moving into a different phase of life. And within that, there's this, this fear of the unknown of what's next. And, and sometimes when we get that fear of the unknown, we begin dreaming of these what-if scenarios. Well, what if I don't do this well? Or if I don't do this well, then this will happen. If I don't, and we start like playing like almost this, this puzzle of what could happen in the future. And then what happens is that fear of the future of what could happen becomes a distraction to the present. And we're so focused on the future that we fail to be obedient in the present. We're so worried about what might happen that we refuse to be obedient in the immediate. We see this this fear of the unknown that David is wrestling with. Then we see the the social fear in verse 6. It says, they stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. When you look at the word they in that passage, you realize that they is multiple groups of people who are chasing him with the intent to devour, to wage war, and to kill. So they are a difficult group of people. So we we see these these different types of fear. So we, we know the power of fear. We see the different types of fear. So it really comes down to what is our response to fear? How we respond to this. We see David's response was to fully trust in who God was. We see that through Scripture, through Psalm 56, that fear can lead us to trust in the Lord. Right in verse 3, we read that. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And we have to understand that fear goes beyond us. Right? Courage to face our greatest fears will not come from our own self-confidence. It is our own self-confidence, our own inability that has caused the fear. So we cannot rely on us to overcome the fear. It is learning to trust in God to overcome the fear. It is through God's word that we can have the trust in God's promises. In verse 4, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Fear can lead us to praise his word. Right, we, we see this setting here, that it is fear that has brought David to this moment to understand the power of who God is. It can give us a personal understanding of who God is and how his word works in relation to us. These are not just empty words, not just empty phrases, but in fact, promises of God, descriptions of God's character. And then ultimately, when you understand who God is, you remember that God is for us. God is for us, and he, he says in Psalm uh, 11, what can man do to me? Right, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? This reminder that God is for us, and it is God that is all-powerful, God that is all-knowing. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we get so caught up in the what-ifs or what might happen or what could be that we forget about God and that God is in control. You know, I heard this story the other day 
uh, about a man who was uh, flying home on an airplane. And on this flight, he heard the noise that nobody really likes hearing, that ding that signifies to put your seatbelt on. And then the pilot comes on. He says, uh, we're going to be going through a pretty rough storm, experiencing quite a bit of turbulence. Please keep your seatbelts on. And you can, you know, if you've been on a plane before, that when you hear that, there's just a sense of, okay, okay, a little bit of uneasiness. A few minutes later, another message comes on. I just want to let you know, we're going to be going right through this storm. It's going to be very rough. Please remain calm. And unfortunately, in the majority of situations, when you hear the phrase, please remain calm, it does not work. Right? In fact, it's probably quite the opposite. Of please remain calm actually induces more panic. And so this man begins to look around the plane and you begin to see the fear on the faces of people. You begin to see the nervousness and kind of just the panic of what's going on right now of the people around them. But as he's looking and seeing this fear on their faces, he sees this girl, about 10 years old, just reading a book. She certainly, she heard the message. She heard the second message, but she was calm. All of a sudden, there's this loud, thunderous clap you could hear on the plane. And it begins to kind of just invite more panic and more fear throughout the people on the plane. And the man looks around, he sees his people just, you know, there begins to be tears. Some people kind of scream when they heard it. And then lightning lights up the sky, and panic just sets in. As the man kind of scans the plane and looks around, he sees panic and panic and fear. But then there's this 10-year-old girl who's not panicking, not fearful, but actually looks very calm. Now she's heard the same message, the same warnings, experienced the same thunder, she's seen the same lightning, but her reaction is much different. And so eventually this plane lands. They begin to get off the plane, and the man says, you know what, I want to seek this girl out. This is really interesting to me. And he goes up to the girl, and he commends her on her bravery. He said, you were so brave on that flight. How did you do it? And she looked at him and said, well, my dad's the pilot. He's just taking me home. I knew he was in control. And sometimes we get so caught up in those what-if scenarios. What if this were to happen? What about this? What if then this happens and then this happens? And then and we build up a, a multi-layer what-if scenario that does not include the power of God does not include the sovereignty of God. It just includes our own worst nightmares. And we forget that in the midst of that of who God really is. And see, what we learn from fear is fear is really can do two things. Fear can either lead you away from Christ or fear can point you to Christ. Fear can lead you away from Christ or fear can point you to Christ. And sometimes through these what-if scenarios, 
we begin to be distracted from who God is, distracted from what God has done, distracted from God and just the relationship with him, and move into just the focus on the scenarios and focusing on the fear rather than focusing on the God who can overcome that fear. Fear can lead us away from Christ or turn us to Christ. And so as you're wrestling with whatever fear it is that you're wrestling with, ask yourself, what is that fear doing in your life? Is that fear causing you to get away from Christ? Are you so focused on the fear that you forgot about who God is? You know, maybe, maybe you have a fear in life right now that you know you need to seek help, you need to seek counsel, you need to restore relationships. But that fear of the consequences, what if, what if someone says something? What if someone thinks something different about me? But you know this is what you need to do. Fear is either going to lead you away from Christ or turn you to Christ. Maybe, maybe it's that fear of removing that sin from your life. You know you need to get rid of it. But it makes you feel a certain way. What if I can never feel this way again? It's always been a part of my life. How, how would I fill my time? What would I do without it? Fear can either lead you away from Christ or turn you to Christ. No, maybe, maybe it's about being a godly leader. Whether it's at home, in the workplace. Well, what, if I, what if I make a mistake? What if I, I try to be this godly person and I make a mistake? And that fear of the consequence is enough for you not to want to be a godly person. For the fear of making one mistake or for the fear of the consequences of one mistake. No, maybe it's just refraining from some talk that is just not building each other up. Right, maybe it's not building, not only is it not building up, but it's just destroying people. And maybe it's refraining from that. Even though there's that fear that you may have been lumped in of being talked about. Fear can either lead us away from Christ or turn us to Christ. As we look at the life of David, we see that there is a battle. There is a battle that you have to choose to fight these fears. Right? And when responding to fear and discouragement, neither previous victory nor previous defeats dictate our next response. Each opportunity that presents itself is a chance to grow in faith. And so can I encourage you to battle that fear, to look at that fear, and then to look at the promises of God and who God is and what God has done, and you'll see how small that fear really is. In a moment, Pastor is gonna lead us in a song. I want you to just listen to the words and the hope that is provided from that. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for who you are. We are thankful for what you do in our lives. We are thankful that you hear our prayers. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling with fear, that they can turn that fear over to you, that that fear will not be a distraction, not be an excuse, but in fact will be something that, that we learn to trust in you, to lean into you, to draw closer to you, to find comfort and to find peace through our fear from you.
Lord, that we can experience personally your promises. Lord, we pray for those who have that, those fear of consequences, of maybe it's time to get rid of some, some sin in their life. Lord, give them the courage to do so, to not be worried about the consequences, but be worried about getting the sin out of their life. We pray for those who are desiring to become a godly leader, that you will give them the courage to lead well, to not be motivated by fear, but to be motivated by an all-powerful God. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. And we cling to your promises. In your name we pray. Amen.